Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for grace. Thank you for churches that are being born. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our own hearts by your Holy Spirit. We ask now, God, that you would speak to us in our sufferings. The fascinating, sometimes frustrating, centerpiece of Christianity, Lord, is faith. And you are seeking to develop our belief and bring about the works of the kingdom through dependence on you. Lord, I know that today you want to do a work in the hearts of each of these saints, binding us together and increasing our love for one another. And so the circumstances have been sovereignly set up by you that we might be drawn into you and made more like you. So go before us now, in Jesus' name, amen. You're not gonna believe this. We say that in two contexts. One, when it's so good, it's just so unbelievable. It's so great, I can't even believe it. Two, when it's so bad, it's so ugly, it's so gnarly, they did that, they said that. I can't even believe it. Just a couple illustrations of these two contexts wherein that statement is made two weeks ago. It's the wild card playoff game. Our Seahawks are playing the Minnesota Vikings. They're up by one point in the last 30 seconds, and the Vikings have positioned themselves to kick a field goal, a mere chip shot, 27 yards. I think the game is over. My wife looks over at me with a tear in her eye. (laughs) Is there any hope? To which my response is, our only hope is maybe Sherman could block the field goal, possibly. They could make it, and if they get the kickoff, they're probably going to have about 19 seconds, and it's possible Lockett could run it for a touchdown return. And as I'm thinking through the dire circumstances of our precious Seahawks, it happened. (laughs) I absolutely could not believe it. Blair Walsh missed a 27-yard chip shot, to which my response was, I can't believe it. (laughs) Now, context number two. Last week, (laughs) we are all here worshiping Jesus, loving Jesus, wondering what's happening to our beloved Seahawks as they're playing the Carolina Panthers, and I end the service, and as I'm walking out the door, Tony has his phone in his hand, and his shoulders are slumped over, and he's shaking his head, and and he turns with a tear in his eye. (laughs) 31 zip at halftime. Hawks? No, Carolina. I can't believe it. (laughs) It's so terrible. It's so awful. (laughs) In all seriousness, the gospel is so good. I can't believe it. And sometimes the circumstances of our lives, when we look out on the world within which we live, are so bad. Our response can only be, I can't believe it. But the centerpiece of Habakkuk, this prophecy that we're studying here for a number of weeks, and the centerpiece really of our Christianity is belief. Belief of the good in the midst of the bad. It's not to turn our eyes away. It's not to deafen our ears to what's going on in the world around us. It's to believe in the unseen, saving grace of a sovereign God who is at 
work in this world in ways that we can't understand. And so for the Christian, the Bible believer, our sufferings are actually designed specifically to deepen our faith, to build our belief in the midst of the bad. And that is exactly the topic we want to explore in our time together this morning, how we are to bolster our belief in the goodness of the gospel, in the goodness of God, in the midst of personally bad circumstances and socially, globally, politically bad circumstances. It's what Habakkuk was facing, and as I've said before in introduction to this book, it's what the church faces as we are increasingly marginalized and moved to the sides and possibly at some point even persecuted, legitimately persecuted for our faith. How might we bolster our belief in the goodness of the gospel and God while standing in the midst of very, very bad and difficult times. We'll start here with number one this morning. To bolster our belief, we must deeply listen to him in the midst of our bad circumstances. Habakkuk's prayer that we looked at two weeks ago, as I said, is an honest prayer. His circumstances, his suffering have produced in him an honest communication with his God. Habakkuk doesn't come to God saying, oh, thou mighty God, good and gracious and great, and religiously presenting his request to God. He comes to him with this agonizing cry because the situation is so bad that he is hedging on becoming bitter. Rather than things getting better, As Habakkuk prays, things seem to be getting worse. And so he orbits around blaming God in this prayer. He orbits around bitterness with God in his prayer. He even gets close to, you could read between the lines here, leaving God because the circumstances are so bad. But what we learn from Habakkuk is that he doesn't leave Though he's bitter because things are not getting better, he stands fast and by faith, through belief, he waits and listens to the Lord, though his prayer is raw, though his prayer is angry, though his prayer is blameful and bitter, he still steps back from his prayer and says, now I'm going to listen to the Lord and what he has to say. The point being, primarily in this first heading this morning, for us to believe in the midst of bad circumstances, the goodness of God, we've got to have an attitude, no matter how bitter, no matter how badly we want to blame God, no matter how desperately tempted we are to leave God, we must deeply listen to him. We can't leave him. We've got to open our hearts to hear from him. The temptation that we face in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our suffering, is the same as Habakkuk. And the thing that saves us from leaving him is exercising the disciplines of Christianity, listening to him through the midst of the disciplines. So when suffering and circumstances are difficult and hard to believe, we listen to the Lord by believing And getting still and silent, going into the solitude 
rather than becoming stressed out and getting strategic on how we're going to fix our situation. The temptation that we face when our circumstances are troubling is rather than fasting in faith and filling up on God and his fullness, we tend to fracture into a million different pieces and then become frenetic in how we're going to finally overcome the issue that we're facing. Rather than meditating on the Bible and the scriptures more deeply in the midst of our suffering, we become manic and managerial, trying to position the pieces of the puzzle so that everything works out for us. And rather than reading the scriptures, we become more cynical. And I want to issue a warning for us as a church, for us as Christians personally, to pray the way that Habakkuk prayed, with a heart of bitterness, a heart of possibly blaming, a heart that's on the, on the edge of leaving God because of the suffering, to pray as Habakkuk prayed, without the disciplines, that is, without an open Bible on your lap, without having first gone to a silent place and gotten still in the solitude, to pray the way that Habakkuk prayed without first fasting and surrendering yourselves to the Lord is very, very dangerous. To not listen to the Lord, but have a heart that blames and becomes bitter towards the Lord is to only add cement to an already hardening heart. Some of us, at certain points in our walk with Jesus, become like angry teenagers. We're not getting our way, and so off to our room we go, shouting, I hate you, all the way. Never giving our parent time to explain, time to show, time to guide, time to teach. We just shut down. We become cynical when our problems are pushing us in all sorts of different directions and we're frenetic and our pace is managerial and we're manic and we're doing all of these things rather than just settling in and trying to listen to the Lord. And I, I will say, I am 100% convinced that much of the anxiety and the fear, much of the confusion, much of the bitterness, much of the cynicism that we face as Christians would disappear if rather than blaming God and becoming bitter towards God and pushing away from him, like Habakkuk, we would slow down in the midst of our suffering, get still, and stop being so strategic on how to overcome it. Coming to him with an attitude of, I want to listen to you, and we had Bibles open on our laps, meditating, reading, and studying. Test me in this. As a pastor and a friend, spend the month of February daily in the Bible for 30 minutes in the mornings and see if it affects your heart. If it translates to more of a sense of his transcendence and his sovereignty in the midst of your sufferings. See if listening to him in the midst of a fast, see if going silent and getting into solitude, see if slowing down doesn't settle your heart and bolster belief in the midst of bad times, belief in his goodness, belief in his grace. Number two from Habakkuk this morning, to bolster our belief in the goodness of God in the midst of bad times, We've got to totally surrender to him everything. Entirely, without question, every bit of ourselves, our fears, our stress, our suffering, our strategies must be surrendered to him. 
Habakkuk here prays, and he gets, he hears a response from God that initially sounds so good. It's exactly what Habakkuk has been asking for. Read with me there in your Bibles in verse 5. Habakkuk has prayed, and now the Lord answers him, and he says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Man, that sounds awesome. Habakkuk has gotten on his face before God. He's waited. He's listened. He said, Lord, I need you to deliver us. And the response comes, the opening line being, look, what I'm going to do is so good. You're not even going to believe it, is Habakkuk's interpretation. But the Lord's response goes on. And it gets bad before it gets better. The Lord's response to Habakkuk goes on. And in detail, he says, Habakkuk, My response to your prayer is, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to bust your chops. They're going to beat you down. They are a violent and cruel people without mercy. And as justice is not prevailing, my answer to your prayer, Habakkuk, is it's going to get so bad, you're not even going to be able to believe how bad it's going to get. And Habakkuk at this point has the choice. I've prayed, I've asked for deliverance, I've asked him to change my situation. And his response is, my situation is going to get worse, it's going to get bad, it's not going to get better. His choice in that moment is either to stand with a rebellious fist, become cynical, God doesn't answer my prayers, Why pray anymore? Why read the Bible? Why continue going to the gatherings on Sunday mornings? Why go to my HG? They're just going to talk about how good God is. He's not good. That's a choice he has to respond that way. But his response instead is total surrender. How do I know? By the time we get to chapter 3, the land is devastated. Babylon has come and taken the people of Judah. And Habakkuk in his total surrender to God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, God's goodness, his total surrender to God's response to his prayer is shown forth because he sings a song of praise in the midst of devastation. In the midst of loss, in the midst of the Lord not giving to Habakkuk the response to his prayer that he requested, Habakkuk surrenders and he sings a song of thankfulness and dependence and trust and belief. For our belief to be bolstered in the goodness of God in the midst of our bad circumstances, God requires total surrender of our expectation, total surrender of our will, total surrender of our ideas, total surrender of our strategies. Understand this. God is always, always working. And 99% of the time, His works we will not understand nor like. Let me read to you a couple scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God, from the beginning to the end, is 
always at work. And like Habakkuk, 99% of the time, the response we get from God, we will not understand, and many times, we certainly will not like. But our response, like Habakkuk's response, is to be a total and wholesale surrendered. D.A. Carson nails it right on the head when he says, one of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. Now, Tim Keller puts this prayer in perspective, the prayer of total surrender, when he says, we can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. When we pray in total surrender, and the response is not what we anticipated nor expected, we can be certain and we can be surrendered to the truth that what we got is good because the God who gave it to us knows everything and only has a good intention for us as believers. The more deeply we surrender to his responses and relinquish our expectations by faith, the more deeply peace that surpasses understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The more overflowing will be our joy, not happy because our circumstances are so wonderful, but a deep abiding joy that cannot be taken from us. And I'll close this point in saying this. For those of you that are new to Christianity, I want you to consider this because it makes sense. Common sense. Common sense chooses surrender and not cynicism. It's more rational to choose to surrender to the God of the universe than to become cynical towards him and reject him and not listen to him. Let me illustrate. You wake up with a consistent sore throat over a number of weeks thinking to yourself, boy, the strep's really taken hold. So you go to the doctor with the expectation being he's going to prescribe for you some sort of antibiotic to rid you of the problem with your throat. He comes back in after having taken cultures of your throat and says to you, I need to tell you something. You have esophageal cancer. It's at a terminal stage. So your expectation going to the doctor was to request from him antibiotic to get rid of a simple strep. His response to you is it's going to get bad. It's not going to get better. You have cancer. Now, how rational would it be to get angry with the doctor and say to him, my expectation, my request of you was an antibiotic for strep. You're telling me I have terminal esophageal cancer. I'm out of here, doc. I don't think I'll see you again. No need to talk to you about this. I've determined my course. It's strep. You see, cynicism in the church is more than strep. It's cancer. The cynicism in our hearts is cancer. It's killing us. The cynicism, the bitterness, it's, it's an unwillingness to surrender to a Savior, to a great physician who has come to us and has very clearly given the diagnosis, in your sin you are dead. 
And to turn from that reality, to turn from that proclamation, is not common sense. And so common sense chooses in that moment, Doc, I surrender to your diagnosis. Whatever process we need to engage in to clear the cancer that I might be given mercy, I'll do. That's total surrender. We close this morning with point number three. To bolster our belief in the goodness of God in the midst of the bad, we need to clearly see through him, clearly see through God. Everybody has a worldview, a way in which we answer the big questions of life. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why do I exist? Why do they exist? What is right and wrong? What is morality? What is evil? What is good? What is justice? Every person on this planet has a world view, a way in which they see the world and answer those questions. So a simple example is an atheist looks at the world and sees through a non-God reality, saying, we exist by cosmic accident and chance and happenstance. A consistent atheist looks at the world and says, evil and good doesn't exist. All that really exists is random chance and happenstance and the survival of the fittest in naturalistic evolutionary theory. So if every person has a worldview, we need to understand that the Bible presents a lens through which we look at the world. Biblical Christians have a Christian worldview, and we answer the questions, why does something exist rather than nothing? What is right and wrong? What is good and evil? What is justice? Why do I exist? Why do other people exist? We answer those questions through the lens of God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And so there are many touch points through which this world comes into focus when we ask these questions, but for us to bolster belief in the goodness of God in the midst of bad times, we've got to see every bit of our life the way that God sees it through a biblical worldview. And I've only highlighted a few things here that we can look through to see the issues of our lives. Number one, we need to see the problems and the suffering of our lives and really the suffering of this world through his sovereignty, through his sovereignty. The Bible is very clear. God is in control. Notice there in verse 6, God says, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The difficult doctrine of the sovereignty of God confronts us with a God who simultaneously has a desire for good in the world but has allowed great evil and injustice to bring about that good. I'm in a Masters of Divinity program currently. We spent nearly an entire semester studying this deep and complex mystery. And at the end of it, I probably had more questions than I've ever had about the sovereignty of God and suffering in this world. But like Habakkuk, a total surrender to this truth brings deep comfort and peace. I could never come to a place of being so audacious and so arrogant to think that I could understand how God 
allows these horrendous evils to bring about his good. But when I look through the lens of the Bible, when I look at this world clearly through the eyes of God, I see his sovereign hand from beginning to end, something I can barely understand, in all events, either permitting and allowing evil or ordaining and prescribing and doing good to bring about this glorious end to all of creation, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, where as the waters cover the sea, so all the earth will know the glory of the Lord. And so I can take my current circumstances and my situation personally, I can take culturally and socially the circumstances of this world and see them through the sovereignty of God. And I can ask the question, why is this happening? And answer it clearly by faith saying God has a good purpose in this. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. I don't get it. I don't like it, but my Bible is open. My Heart and soul is fasted and full of God. My meditations are deep and long and centered in him. And in the silence, I can surrender to him totally and see more clearly and understand, though not perfectly, at least a little more persistently. Number two, to understand our problems and continue to believe, we've got to see through eternity, his eternity. What I've discovered in my own personal life is that when suffering comes, I become the center of the solar system. (laughs) I don't know about you guys. You guys are probably much more mature than I am. But if I stub my toe, all of heaven and earth needs to bow to my pain and pity me. (laughs) We become so myopic. All we can see is not even the next step in front of us. We are stuck in these present temporal bodies in time and in space and when suffering and situations are troubling we cannot see the big picture not to mention the eternal picture not to mention that there are nations and tribes and a globe of billions of people within which God is working his will to bring glory to his name And so we must step back in the silence and the solitude and the fasting and the meditating on the scriptures in total surrender through his sovereignty and say, I need to see this in light of eternity. Every tribe, tongue, and nation that has ever existed on this planet, my stubbed toe, my issue in my marriage, my issue at work, my emotional dispositions, my cultural place in society, the wars and the plagues and the problems that I see in all people groups. I see this now, Lord, help me in light of an eternal glory, an eternal good that is coming. The Apostle Paul serves as the primary example. Somebody who just had the snot beat out of him constantly, constantly suffering, shipwrecked, robbed, beaten, betrayed, He had every opportunity to say, I'm serving you, King Jesus, and this is making me bitter. It's really bad. I'm out. But instead, he said, for our present troubles are small. Crazy Paul. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. 
And finally, this morning, we close. We must see through his reality. Every worldview has a reality. And for you philosophers in the room, an ontology, a sense of being, a sense of the way that things are and seeing things. And the Christian sees through God's reality, the way that he has framed up reality, what he has made reality for. And it's twofold, this reality. It's spiritual and it is cross-resurrection centered. We must see through a spiritual reality our sufferings and problems in the world around us. And we've got to see through a cross-resurrection saturated reality. Let me detail both of those and we'll come to communion this morning. Number one, it's a spiritual reality through which we look at the world. As I said before, when we are in the midst of suffering, all we can really focus on is the physical, practical, present reality. But we've got to step back and see it through a spiritual reality. The greatest example of this in the Bible is the man Job. In his physical reality, Job lost his entire family. All of his sons and daughters were wiped out, lost all of his wealth in a moment, and was covered in boils, his health gone, and then his friends come to support him and instead frustrate him by telling him that he's done something wrong. And the entire book of Job is Job saying, I've done nothing wrong. I'm bitter towards God. He hedges around, orbits in that honest place of prayer. I'm not sure I like God anymore. And then God comes to him and responds to him and and sets Job in his place. Tells his friends, what you're saying to him is wrong. Job is right. Job, are you there when the mountain goat has its baby? Job, can you explain to me why an ostrich can run so fast but it won't take care of her eggs? Job, can you explain to me where the storehouses of snow are kept? Job, can you tell me, were you there when the angels were singing as I made creation? Just sets Job in his place in the midst of his suffering and begins to open his eyes to this spiritual reality. And the crucial point of Job is that we never see the point in his suffering. Job never sees the point in his suffering. We do. You see, The beginning of the book opens with this angelic realm where Satan comes to God and says, I'm going to take Job out. And God says to Satan, no, Job is my man. I'm going to display my wisdom and my glory and my goodness through him because he won't bail out. Take his health, take his wealth, take his family. He will continue to totally surrender. Submit to me. He's going to get real honest. He's going to hedge on bitterness. But when I respond to him, he will display who I am in the midst of his suffering. Job is never told by God, your suffering is to show Satan that I'm better than everything else. We oftentimes forget that the church, you and I, are positioned in this metaphysical realm. This isn't weird, hooky-pooky ghost stuff. This is the reality of Christianity, the world in which we live in. We see through the eyes of angels and demons at war with one another, watching us, the church. I'll prove myself to you from the Apostle Paul. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, God's purpose in the church in all of this, our sufferings, our lives together, was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich, rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says at the centerpiece of Ephesians, some of our suffering, some of our troubles, our reality is that we are being watched 
God is using the church to display his wisdom, his grace, his goodness, his delivering power in this metaphysical realm. And so we've got to see our sufferings through that lens as a means of believing the good in the midst of the bad. And then finally, finally, we've got to see all of life, all of creation, all of history as God sees it through a cross-resurrection-centered reality. All of reality, all of history, all of humanity was made through him, by him, and for him. The pinnacle, the apex of history, creation, and humanity, this meta-narrative, this grand story of our sufferings and our deliverances is a cross upon which God is crucified as a man taking upon himself our shame, our guilt, our sufferings, our plight, going into a grave and resurrecting, conquering forever sin and death. In the midst of our sufferings, the world responds in two ways. God can't do anything about this, or God can and he doesn't care. A cross-resurrection-centered reality sees that not only can God do something about our sufferings, he has. He has become a helpless baby, lived for us the ways that we could not live. He has become a high priest for us. He has become a sacrifice for us, a propitiation for us. He has become justification for us. He has become peace for us. He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has suffered in greater degree than any of us. He has responded to the brokenness of this world by coming into this world, being one with this world, dying for this world, showing that not only can God do something about this, God has done something about this. And the resurrection is our hope. We have to live and see all of reality, see our neighbors, our friends, see our own personal lives through this reality that we will live forever. We will all resurrect. You are going to live forever. That should frame up our understanding of the decisions we make tomorrow differently. Seeing our sufferings and our hurts and our pain, knowing that God cares and has responded to us in the cross. 